Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and a board-certified lactation consultant. And I'm your co-host, Dr. Karen Bodnar. I am a pediatric hospitalist at Anova Children's Hospital and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Virginia Commonwealth University. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant. This podcast is produced by the Institute for the Advancement of Breastfeeding and Lactation Education and is co-sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Hi, Karen. How's it going? Good, Anne. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. So today we're going to talk about a couple things. First, we're going to talk about the hyperlactation protocol, and then we're going to talk about the coronavirus. Very timely. Mm, They're not related at all. Not at all. (laughs) No, but you know, this new protocol just came out. Great work. And uh, we're just getting our, you know, first information on breastfeeding and the coronavirus. So I think it's important to talk about. Yeah, for sure. So the hyperlactation protocol is the latest Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine protocol. And um, I'm going to call this oversupply because I like the term oversupply more than hyperlactation. Um, but basically, hyperlactation is another term for just having an excessive milk supply. Um, so this protocol was published uh, online uh, in early 2020. I think it'll be printed in the maybe February uh, 2020 breastfeeding medicine issue. And uh, full disclosure, I'm one of the authors of this protocol. So it was really fun to write. And Helen Johnson, who is a, a resident in, in general surgery, uh, and I think we'll be a breast surgeon someday, um, is the lead author. So um, first of all, let's talk about definitions. Um, The definition of oversupply is pretty tricky because one woman's oversupply is another woman's perfect supply. Mm -hmm. So um, for example, if a mother has too much milk, you know, has enough, like some mothers will say, I have enough to feed twins. Well, that's perfect for someone who has twins or for someone whose intention um, it is to, to donate their milk, to become a regular milk donor. So um, there's really not a true definition. Um, I feel like oftentimes when we're struggling with something new in medicine, particularly in breastfeeding medicine, because so many things are not well documented, we oftentimes will turn to animal literature where there's more research, like bench, bench research. And so what I do is I turn to Dr. Laura Hernandez, who's our family <laughs> biologist at the University of Wisconsin. I've mentioned her many times. And uh, when I mention oversupply, that's just not in the wheelhouse of a bovine milk researcher because that's what they, that's what they um, try to um, read for. So um, hyperlactation, so the study of hyperlactation, like why this happens, why do women make so much milk and why can't they downregulate is not something that is very well documented or studied in the bovine literature because that's not a problem that they, they that's not something they see as a problem. That's something that they wish for. I mean, I can see um, how they wouldn't have any literature on the treatment of it, but you would think if they're breeding for it, they might have some interesting insights into what are the genetic markers that help them to breed for more milk or other yeah. things that, yeah, I'm always curious about like why is it that this mama can get herself to make a hundred ounces a day, and this other poor mom is making four ounces a day, and nothing I do helps her. 
Right, right. Yeah. No, yeah, I know. There's this, it's such a black box. But even understanding that down regulation, like what happened at the lactocyte we'll talk about, is really unclear. Um, and yeah, we'll talk about that. So the first thing I want to mention is that oversupply is not the same as engorgement. And I think years ago I used to talk about like, oh, this woman's so engorged when she's overly full, but it's really not the same. And I think it's important to differentiate these two things because the treatment for engorgement is not the same as the treatment for oversupply. So engorgement is the swelling in the tissue around the, around the, the glandular tissue. So it's in, the, in what we call the interstitium. So it's like when someone has a swollen ankle, it's, um, it's not in the arteries or veins necessarily. It's in the, like the tissue around all of those arteries, veins, and nerves. And that's where engorgement is too. And engorgement is typically something that happens during the first week postpartum when there's that shift to lactogenesis too. And with engorgement, we usually recommend things like cold compresses and elevation and compression. And those are not typically strategies that would be used for oversupply. Um, so getting back to the, to the definition, um, there's not really even a volume that describes oversupply. Uh, in the protocol, the authors state that infants need anywhere from 450 to 1200 ml per day for growth. Um, and so then maybe one could assume that like 40 ounces a day, which is about 1200 ml, would be an oversupply. But, um, but that's, but you know, you, if you say that to someone who's pumping like, you know, 42 ounces a day and their baby's taking 35 ounces a day and they're comfortably storing seven ounces a day, they, and they're comfortable and they're not having any problems, they would say, why are you telling me I have an oversupply? Is that a problem? So I think, again, it's all, it's almost like tongue tie in a way where it's, you know, it's about, it's about function and not form. And this is about like, like consequences, not like the, that, like the amount of ounces that a woman is pumping to some degree. I mean, if she's pumping 80 or hundred ounces, that's a whole different story, but yeah, although um, but these, I would say just clinically, I, you know, and I've completely made this up on my own over time. I often <laughs> say, if I see a mom who is not intending to, you know, donate to the milk bank and she is just pumping because she started pumping and now she sort of has to pump, if she's storing more than 10 ounces a day or 300, I sort of will then talk to her about this is a path that you could go down if you have this tendency to make more and more as you pump more. And this is a way that we would deal with it. And so that's sort of my like mental when I see on my questionnaire, are you, you know, pulling from your stash now to feed your baby or are you storing every day? If it's over 300 milliliters a day, I start to have a little like, oh, I should address that. Yes, I totally agree. Because really it is a preventative thing to prevent the consequences of some of the things that we'll talk about, some of the risks. Mm -hmm. um, I see a lot of moms so who were started pumping early for whatever reason, who were given no guidance as to what are a normal, you know, volume and they just are going and going and going and nobody's watching and they get really, really high. Yeah. Yeah. And that's actually, um, that is um, one of the points in the protocol is saying that, look, we need to really customize and be very specific and individualize our recommendations to women. So for example, if a woman has a high supply with her first baby and then her second baby ends up in the NICU and she knows she's prone to hyperlactation, we don't really want to set around that course of like, you know, pump every two and a half hours, every three hours during the day, uh, day and night. 
because as she does that, you know, by day four or five, she may, and I've seen this, they're already up to like, you know, 50, 60 ounces. Absolutely. So they really need to be watched almost every day, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So everyone's just got their own journey with this whole thing. Yeah. Um, and I find that most healthcare providers have no basic understanding of what are appropriate volumes for moms to have five days, 10 days, 30 days after delivery. Right. And so they don't guide the moms because they just don't know if it's normal or not. Right. Right. And the other thing that I see, right. And, and there's not, there's not an understanding and many, I think that because there's so much angst about low supply that the conversation about high supply doesn't really make it into the mainstream of conversation between mothers and their doctors. And so I've heard many patients over the years say to me, well, you know, I talked to my, my baby's doctor about this high supply I have, and they say to me, well, you should be so thankful you have so much milk. And they don't realize that it's really, you know, for some women, they can't even go back to work because they have too much milk. Absolutely. So, um, this is this is absolutely, you know, hyperlactation is absolutely a role for breastfeeding medicine. I mean, there's this is something where, you know, oftentimes they do need medical treatment. So we'll talk about that. Um, so first, let's talk about the symptoms that lead to a diagnosis of oversupply, because we're talking about like, well, you know, how do we diagnose if it's not volume? Well, symptoms, I think, play a really important role. So infants can have symptoms just like mom. Um, so infant symptoms, and, and sometimes the symptoms are more evident in one or another. So sometimes I'll have moms who are making massive amounts of milk and the baby's fine. And then sometimes the babies are having a lot of symptoms of oversupply that the mother doesn't recognize because she has so much storage capacity that she doesn't realize that the amount of milk that she's making is too much for the baby um, because mm-hmm. she's not very uncomfortable. Um, so infant symptoms uh, tend to be fast growth, like a pound a week. I usually tell my families that an ounce a day keeps the doctor away. That's like a perfect, like beautiful <laughs> on the curve growth until about three to, you know, three and a half, four months. And then after that, they kind of decelerate a bit. But these babies tend to grow faster. Oftentimes um, at certain points, they'll be gaining a pound a week or about two ounces a day. They're gassy. Um, they tend to become kind of fussy. They spit up a lot oftentimes. And they oftentimes stool during feeding, which I'll talk a little bit more about in a moment. And sometimes they have blood streak stools, which we have no documentation on, but I know it happens. We'll talk about that too. And then during feeding, um, they can choke and cough and become frustrated. And so then they try to control the flow by, by biting down on the nipples to control. And that, that causes pinching and vasospasm pain uh, by the mom and sometimes nipple lesions. Um, so the, I just want to talk about this issue of milk and high milk because um, when babies are gassy and fussy, what, what I think is happening is that, well, first of all, these mothers are more prone to the milk separating between milk and high milk than mothers who are well-matched. And so I really don't even like to talk about milk and high milk for mothers who don't overproduce because they, again, they tend not to separate their milk. And then people have this idea that babies always should stay with one breast to get the hind milk. Mm-hmm. And um, one, one extreme um, situation that I ran across, which, which sent chills up my spine, was uh, I was teaching at a conference. And it was a one-day conference for physicians. And um, I, I introduced a case of, uh, of a baby who had not gained for like two months and mother had insufficient glandular tissue. And it was explaining what that was. And the provider in the room said, well, wait a minute, isn't the baby just not growing because the baby's not getting high milk? And that, like, I just immediately, 
usually my voice becomes much louder in that kind of situation. And I said, don't think about formal kind milk. I don't even consider that as anything unless you're dealing with hyperlitation. Because um, you know, all, what's gonna happen with that baby, that baby will die by staying on one breast with insufficient milk as opposed to two. Oh, gosh. Um, so it's pretty scary. Yeah, so there's, there's a lot of misconception about that. And I still see that happening among our pediatricians uh, that, uh, the, that they recommend the baby stay with, with the baby not gaining well, that they stay with one breast to get the high milk. Mm-hmm. So, so getting back to the formal kind milk, I feel like this is really the only situation where, it's, where this happens. And be, when there's a high supply, the baby is receiving a lot of formal milk. And that formal milk is high in carbs, which the main carb is lactose. Well, lactose is osmotic, meaning that it draws fluid into the gut. And that's why we use lactulose, that really sticky, sweet syrup, for people who have liver disease or for people with constipation to get them to poop because it draws all this fluid into the gut and gives them diarrhea. So when babies are drinking from a breast with um, a lot of lactose initially in that form, that form milk, the babies poop during feeding. And that oftentimes is my clue when, be, when people say, oh, my baby is fussy and gassy and just always pulls off the breast. And I'll say, well, does the baby poop during feeding? And they have to think about it. And when they realize, well, yeah, that does happen, that's often to me like a really strong sign of there being oversupply. Um, so um, anyway, uh, in terms of, so that's the, those, that sort of explains why the baby is having the symptoms that he or she is. Moms are at risk for um, other symptoms. So they oftentimes experience pain because their breasts feel heavy and full. They tend to have some milk leakage at times, which is variable. They tend to be prone to mastitis, recurrent plugging, nipple blebs, and vasospasm. I find it so interesting that sometimes one breast will have vasospasm and the other won't. And then when we reduce the milk, the milk supply on that side of the vasospasm, the vasospasm goes away. And that's the only time I see vasospasm on hmm. one side and not on the other, which I think is not common, but I've been, I'm like, I was amazed when I saw that. Um, Interesting. And then I was talking to Dr. Katrina Mitchell, our breast surgeon, our favorite breast surgeon. And um, she, she said, well, that makes sense because of the anatomy of the breast and how that pressure is, um, the, the pressure is uh, exerted upon the nerves, arteries, and veins, you know, when they're so full that you could get some vasospasm. So that, that was interesting. Um, so the question is, getting back to like the etiology, why does this happen? Milk production is supposed to be controlled by two different, like sort of two different systems. One is the pituitary gland that puts up prolactin. And prolactin is like the big manager, the, the guy with the whip, um, who's like, you know, telling the slaves to get to work. Um, so it's telling the lactocytes to like, get going, come on, let's keep going. It's, or, or a nicer way to put it, it's like the key in the engine, you know, it like keeps the engine moving making milk but then by um by like three to four months prolactin doesn't play as much of a role and it's really those local factors in the breast that control the manufacturing of milk so it's the stretch so stretch of the alveoli seems to play a role in how much milk the lactocytes are going to make and lactocytes are the milk producing cells and also um there's um it seems that an accumulation of those bioactive factors in the milk like uh, like lactoferrin, the lysozyme, and um, the lactalbumin, all of those proteins that also play a role in the immune health of the infant feed back to the lactocyte. And uh, when there's a high concentration, 
there will be um, less milk produced. And that's a theory. That's what I've heard from Dr. Hernandez. We used to think it was serotonin, that there was this one particular protein called the feedback inhibitor of lactation. And uh, Dr. Hernandez recently said, no, 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 it's from scratch. Like, just ignore FIL. That doesn't exist anymore. So that was, um, so, and some, so there's, that's the mystery, Karen, is that why don't we know more about that? You know, when you talked about like, well, there's got to be simple by research. We don't even understand that, which is pretty amazing. Given it's that pretty sad. It's survival, of this, survival of the species, yeah. Um, but what's happening is that women with overproduction just are not listening to these signals. And some people think, well, maybe this is just due to um, too much prolactin. You know, maybe it's uh, these women just, maybe they all need to have MRIs of their pituitary gland to see if they have a pituitary tumor. But that has never panned out. And, um, you know, you can do a prolactin level on these women, but by golly, you know, they're you know, likely to be high because they're lactating. And you're not going to be able to distinguish the prolactin from a prolactin-secreting tumor versus just a high prolactin because they're lactating. Um, and then you and I both know that many women with a history of a prolactin-secreting tumor don't make enough milk. They don't respond or their pituitary has been kind of burnt out by meds given to them or whatever. Uh, they don't make enough milk. So there's no real... Um, correlation between uh, pituitary secreting tumor and having uh, too much milk. So, or nor is there a thyroid issue either. So, um, I don't typically do any kind of laboratory testing or workup or brain MRI for women who have an oversupply. Um, so, so we don't understand why they're not feeding back, but we do have some understanding of behavioral means by which women will will develop an oversupply, right? So things like the haka, which women love to use for like nursing on one side and then the nurse on the other side, and then the first side they'll apply the haka to take out some extra milk for storage. Um, some mothers will feel that they'll worry that, they're, that they may not make enough milk, and so they'll start taking galactagogs or herbal or other supplements that will increase the milk supply. And then they just, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where they're making too much milk and then they have to pump more to keep up with it. And then they kind of drive themselves into this persistent hyperlactation situation. And some others like to pump after feeding or they're pumping extra, again, because they're worried. I think there's some insecurity with, um, with milk supply. I would go further and, and say anxiety. I see a lot of people yeah. who have anxiety who have this. Yes. 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 It would be, I think, I don't know that there's been any literature. I don't think there's been any literature on the psyche, like characteristics of women who have oversupply, um, particularly for women who you, you suggest that they cut down and they won't. They just are not willing. They're, they have their heels dug in. They are not going to make any changes. Um, so why don't we talk about things that, what, so um, we talked about, um, you know, the definition and symptoms and uh, how women get driven into an oversupply. Um, and I guess I should mention that pumping in and of itself. So one of the things I tell women who, let's say, for example, they, you know, had that first baby, every, the baby nursed well, they had a high supply at the beginning, their, their body's sort of regulated to the infant's needs. And then with a the subsequent baby, they end up being an exclusive pumper. Um, these mothers, um, oftentimes they become, they develop oversupply inadvertently because they're pumping to 
complete emptiness, which they don't ever really get empty. And so then they just, it's so much more of a demand on the breast than what the baby would be demanding. And so I tried to explain to them that the pump is like a big fat hog of a baby and um, it will not feed back, you know. So, so pumping, I think, is, is, is a big factor for women with hyperlactation. And yeah, sometimes I, I tell people they're feeding twins, their baby and their pump, or their baby and their freezer. Exactly, exactly, yeah. And some women, you know, oftentimes we talk about women going back to work as losing their milk supply or really taking a risk with low milk supply. But I've had some women who go back when they're at work during the week, they're pumping, and it's so stimulating to the supply that by Saturday and Sunday, they go home to their babies and they're with their babies all day and then they develop plugs and mastitis because the baby cannot take nearly as much milk as they've driven their supplies up to, you know, by the end of the week. So sometimes, you know, so women who have a high supply really do need to be counseled on how to pump. So let's talk about what to do. What do we, what do, we do with these women um, when they have a high supply? So first, of course, for most things in medicine and anything else, we wanna just encourage them to change their behaviors. So we'd want to see if mom can cut down on the amount of pumping she's doing after nursing, um, and especially not pumping if uh, not pumping to complete dryness, so she can gradually reduce the amount of milk that she's taken off after nursing. And if if she's an exclusive pumper, she is going to need to gradually decrease the amount of milk that she's pumping. Now that gets a little tricky, don't you think? When women say, okay, should I cut down on the number of minutes that I'm pumping? Or should I, like, how do I know? Or should I cut down by the ounces? What do you usually tell them, Karen? You know, I, I find that for people who really have very high supplies, like you can tell that this is somebody in this category because I'll say, how long do you pump for? And they'll say, eight minutes or 11 right. minutes. Whereas most people say, 20 minutes, 15 to 20, 20 to 30. But, you know, these moms know that if they pump for, you know, six minutes, they get this many ounces. And so for people who get a ton in a very short amount of time, I find they tend to do better. And it doesn't really matter if it's minutes or ounces, but, you know, specifically cutting down by one minute at a time or a little bit of volume rather than trying to space out the timing between um, removing milk or dropping a pump. I find that doesn't, they tend to end up really uncomfortable and they have to go down little by little. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If I, if they, if they say to me, I, there's no way I can go to from every three hours, every three and a half, I'll get a plug. Then I'm like, okay, we need to give you some medicine for that because Absolutely. You know, Those people need you know, medicine. Just, you are yeah. completely, I, I agree with medicine. you a hundred percent. But some yeah, of those yeah, people, definitely. you know, they're just, they're high and they're not uncomfortable. Like they're not really, it's not a big struggle for them. And so that's not like an urgent right, thing. Right. Those ones are the ones where I'll sort of right. be like, okay, this is how you do a little less. So, but totally, if somebody totally. Yeah, gets totally, plugged, yeah. I'm like, yes, let's treat with medicine so that you can go longer without being sad. Yeah. And I, and so what I was going to say, um, you know, in asking that question that um, women really vary in terms of like the way they like to be counseled on how to reduce their pumping. Like some women like to be told to cut down by a minute. Some people like to be told, well, you know, just stop when the, um, like after the, um, after the really brisk um, drops, like when you see five, you know, when you're done seeing five sprays and you see trickles, you know, I, I like to like hear them explain what it looks like 
to them to pump. Um, and, um, and if they identify separate letdowns, which a lot of times they don't um, because there's constantly milk dripping. Um, but yeah, so I kind of work with them to see what makes the most sense to them. It's like one, one recommendation is instead all for these women. And then if they're not massively overproducing, um, I do like to recommend black feeding. And um, black feeding is that principle, is using that principle of fullness to feed back to the lactocytes. And, um, you know, many women will say, well, I do nurse one breast per feed, so I don't think that'll help. But they are probably nursing a little more often than every three hours. So black pumping is, and so black pumping will help them anyway. I tell them to give it a try anyway. Black pumping is usually um, pumping, it's pumping in the three hour block. So like, for example, from noon to 3 p.m., all, pump, all nursing, whenever the baby wants to nurse, the baby nurses from the left, from three to six, the baby nurses from the, from the right, and then from, from six to nine from the left and nine to midnight from the right. And so the other breast is sort of lay fallow um, in the field, so to speak, and doesn't do anything. And that feeds back to the lactocytes to not make as much milk. But if that breast becomes really uncomfortable, they can take off a little bit of milk, but not much. And I find that if this doesn't work in about 36 to 48 hours, it's not going to work. And then I abandon that approach. And I never really, ex I never extend the black. So if they say, well, three hours didn't work, should I try four or five? I say no, because they're already so full after three hours. I mean, how much do you have to yell and scream at a lactocyte, you know, before you get mastitis or plugs? And so I just say no, don't bother, let's try something else. Let's try medicines at that point, and black feeding is not going to help. Or if they're just like massively full and they're pumping because it gets so massively full, and they don't think they can stop that, then I don't have them black feed, black feed at first because they'll just be way too uncomfortable, especially if they're getting plugs. It's interesting. Um, I find that yeah. unless they're really pretty close to their delivery, like the baby's pretty young, that mm -hmm. few, uh, like, there, you were like, um, well, a lot of them are feeding on one side and their baby is getting so much milk from that one side that they're sleeping and they are going longer than three hours already. Now they might have been using the pump on the other side. So then there's, yeah. you know, sort of block feeding is decreasing doing that. But mm -hmm. I'm not a big fan of block feeding. I don't, I don't find it to be super helpful in people who mm -hmm. are the real, you know, the people who find me are these like sometimes super producers and i'm like okay let's skip up let's skip on down our protocol a little further yeah that's i mean that's the thing i'm really picky about who um black feeds but a lot of times i'm seeing them for the you have never seen lactation before so um more and more that's been happening lately i feel like i'm getting direct referrals to the breastfeeding medicine clinic from physicians as opposed to having them see lactation first so those are kind of you know if they've seen lactation first and they've tried that, uh, then clearly, you know, they have to move on. So it depends on the person. But I do find that can really help a lot uh, for some people. Um, and then, um, and then uh, the other thing is uh, just behaviorally, like when you're dealing with a, a mom where the baby's just really choking and sputtering and having difficulty feeding, um, doing a little bit of laid back positioning can be helpful, but Quite honestly, I don't find that to be super helpful, and I think laid-back positioning can be tricky. I also worry about moms taking it literally and lying. Like, I think there's a lot of conversation about, like, lying on your back to feed, and um, then the glandular tissue falls to the chest wall, and the babies, I think babies not gain well. 
because they can't grasp the glandular tissue anymore because it's like bobbing for apples, like it's really deep, like it, they latch on, but then the glandular tissue fall, has fallen to the chest and they can't get at it. And so then they're just using suction. And then, so sometimes I've seen moms who start doing laid back nursing, like at nine months, 12 months, and they come in with recurrent plugs and mastitis for the first time ever. And I find out that it's because they've switched the positioning and the babies can't get to the glandular tissue anymore. So I'm a little leery about that. I like to really teach them and make sure that they're doing it properly before, um, just, or like, I don't like to give that advice over the phone. Um, so if those things don't help, um, oh, and then the other behavioral thing that can really help um, while just dealing with infant symptoms would be to shake and knead the breast. And um, I got that idea from Dr. Tina Smiley several years ago, and I thought that was brilliant. And I do think it makes a big difference um, by just shaking the breast to um, mix the fat and the formal together so the baby's not getting that big dump of lactose and they're more comfortable at the breast. The, the problem with it is that moms oftentimes forget or don't take the time to do that. And I usually just tell them to do it for 30 seconds. But those who do it really do notice a difference. Do you ever have them do that? I have suggested it a few times. I don't know that I've gotten a lot of feedback on whether or not people found it helpful. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I started asking them. And yeah, I, I would say that that's definitely a good strategy. Um, and then, so in terms of uh, medic medication interventions, um, I usually have to start with herbs, and they usually start with sage drops. I think that works the best. The other herb that some people use is peppermint, but I don't, I don't know. I um, haven't tried peppermint extract. I guess this is because I haven't. Um, and some of my patients will use essential oils, like which are not meant to be ingested, but those are topical, like sage or peppermint essential oils. And I haven't found those to be as helpful as oral sage drops. So oral sage drops, that would be an extract, a sage, um, sage extract in an alcohol base. And um, I just recommend, I know there's a lot of different companies that make herbal extracts, and so I recommend finding a company that is available to the people that you work with, your clients or your patients, and use that company, get to know it, and figure out the good dosing with that. And what I find is that, uh, if, that they work best if taken before bed when the supply is at its lowest, because it's seems like the concentration of sage is highest, uh, you know, that the lactocytes have higher exposure to the sage uh, substance or protein, whatever it is, um, if it's not mixed into this huge milieu of milk before, at that time. So I have them pump or feed, make sure they're relatively empty when they take it before bed. And then I also feel that they have a better sense of whether it worked because when they wake up, many women who have an oversupply really are uncomfortable and they pay attention to how full they are. And when they wake up and they realize, oh, I'm not quite as full, that's a good sign that it's working. So, um, so then I just have them take one dose and then watch and see how things are over the next day or two. And then if they feel like they need further decline in their supply to take it again. So it's just like an as needed dose. It's not a prescribed like once a day for 10 days or twice a day for five days or something like that. Like that, I, you don't have as much control over what's happening if it's given like that. Um, another option I like to recommend is the birth control pill. I think that works super well um, with estrogen. You have to be careful about not overshooting. So I tell women that it's usually going to reduce the supply within the first week. So by day four, six, four, five, six, seven is when they'll start to notice a, a decrease in their supply. And then I say stop it at that point because 
so it's a hormone, so it's going to last, you know, at least a couple more days in the system. So when they start to feel the, the drop, then we don't know how much further it's going to go. So then I say stop. And women will usually have a withdrawal bleed on that, which is normal, so I warn them about that. Um, and they don't have to be committed to the birth control pill, of course, because they can just use it for a short time. They should be, obviously, post six weeks, six weeks or, or later, to reduce the risk of blood clots and not have any other risk for blood clots or strokes, um, such as migraine with aura or hypertension or something like that. And I and often then, get the question oh. about that, about whether or not they can do that if they have another form of birth control, like an IUD in place or a Nuva ring or right. progesterone only, right. OCPs. Mm -hmm. And yeah. for those, you know, short four to seven days, then I say, yes, you yeah. can do this on top of having oh. the Nuva ring. Oh yeah. But the Nuva ring has estrogen, so that'll drop the supply. Yeah, yeah, but um, I find that some ring people ring. don't have, uh, you know, they, they breastfeed on the Nuva ring. Really? Oh, I have not. I usually find that people drop this. Well, we don't use, I don't, our patients don't use the Nuva ring very much. Um, but, um, and I, I but haven't had does, a time, but I have had some who yeah. have continued production who were already well established when they got it. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I would say the Nuva ring would, yeah, it has pretty strong estrogen. Um, this poor and woman then, I saw um, with it recently that, was trying and trying to stop. And I was like, yeah, go ahead. Made no, Nuvering did not help her. Yeah. Well, sometimes they're like unstoppable trains. In fact, you know, the estrogen does truly increase the prolactin level. It's just that it blocks prolactin's effect at the lactocyte. And, um, but, but once in a while, I do have women who I give the birth control pill to, and they say, no, nope, that actually made my supply even worse. <laughs> increased it even higher. So you get that paradoxical response sometimes. That's why they must um, be followed closely. Then, those are the ones who we are ready for. Yes, and yes, they should be followed closely for sure. And then uh, the other one is pseudoephedrine, which many people in this country know as a pseudofed. And um, someone can, like I usually ask people, like, do you have allergies? Have you ever taken Sudafed? And say, oh, I love Sudafed. I can't wait to start taking it in the spring, you know? And, um, <laughs> and so then I decide, great, well, you can start that then. Um, I do watch, have them watch for infant irritability. Sudafed was, you know, I don't know if you remember this when you were in your training, Karen, but when I was young, um, we used to give babies Sudafed all the time for colds, you know, new, you know, the young babies, you know, even at, you know, six, eight weeks. Oh, no, that got was taken before off the my time. But when I was yeah. in training was around the time they were passing laws, preventing people from getting too much from the pharmacy so that they would stop making meth with it. Yeah. But they uh, took it off the market for children way before that, because uh, children, it was a, a very common reason for children in the emergency room with, um, heart-related symptoms, uh, tachycardia and irritability mm. and sweating and things like that. And so, um, so I do tell people, eh, you have to be careful. I mean, you have to watch for infant irritability. So I'm, it's not my favorite thing to use because of just what I knew what would happen when infants were exposed to it in the past. Well, and the other thing I noticed um, when I read the protocol was that in the chart of possible medication, it was suggested that it could be given every 12 hours. And I, when I give it to people, I tell them to use it like in the morning and maybe, you know, early afternoon, but many people find it hard to sleep. And so I don't oh, yeah. take it every 12 hours because that would have them taking it probably morning and bedtime, which. Yeah. 
some of my patients take their like loratadine D, you know, their antihistamine that decongestant, they will take it before bed. And those are the kind of people that say that they can have a pot of coffee and go to sleep. So they're just, you know, they just have this amazing blood brain barrier that doesn't, you know, they just can ignore it. So it's kind of amazing. I think I would not sleep for two days if I took a dose of extra. <laughs> And then, um, and then the, what I call my back pocket, uh, you know, my back pocket, you know, final card, my, you know, the card that you can always use when you have nothing, when you have nothing else is uh, cabergoline or bromocryptine. And those are medications, those are prescription medications that increase dopamine. And so they will drop the prolactin level. They work like a charm. There's no question. They're very strong. And uh, for a woman who's got like a mild to moderate oversupply, I would not consider using that. It would be for those women who have a really severe oversupply. Um, I don't really use bromocryptine because it has more neurologic side effects than cabergoline. Uh, so in the cabergoline, um, I give one dose and they only take another dose if I talk to them. So every dose requires a conversation about how they're doing. I've had some women who, um, have so the thing is, cabergoline comes in packs of eight, yes. at least in our area. No, it does. I had to learn it. that the hard way. Right. The pharmacist would call me and be like, Why did you write for five or ten? It only comes in exactly. eight. <laughs> I'm like, Oh, eight. I didn't know. Right. Yeah, it comes in eight. So that means that they have extras. And so if they're not listening really well, because you know they're in the room with like you know two other kids and it's like things don't compute sometimes. Um, I've had some women take the first dose and then it's like, oh, that helped kind of, I think I'll take another one. And then, you know, it has that, it's a, it's a, it's a, it lasts for five days. So then by day two, they'll take another and then two days later, they'll take another. And then by seven days, they're calling me saying, I have no more milk. My baby's starving. What do I do? And uh, I'm like, wait, you were supposed to call me after one dose. Oh, was that right? I didn't remember that. Well, and it's only and half so, a pill. Um, so. Right, right, right. And so I, right. And so, um, and then, you know, then it's a relactation situation. And then that takes, you know, uh, for the hyperlactation people, they can relactate much more quickly. But from my experience, it's like at least two to three weeks to get the supply back up. No, it's true. So I had one patient, be... she didn't take it more often than I recommended, but she took one dose and she, at three days was like, oh, maybe it did a little. She took a second dose and she was like, it was intense, substantial drop. Yeah. So yeah. I was like, it's okay. Yeah. You have an amazing ability to make milk. Let's just, go, you know, get you. And she went, she went back up. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very, I'm very ginger with the doses of that. Yeah. But it's, it's a nice alternative for women who um, have a loss and they just want to stop lactating immediately, or they have to stop lactating immediately because of, you know, some horrible situation. Mm -hmm. um, and um so then it's that it's an alternative. And then I have some women who are so anxious about their hyperlactation and they come to me specifically to say, I, I have this really high milk supply. I'm not sure I want to do anything about it right now, but how am I going to get out of jail? Like, how am I going to wean at some point? Oh, yeah. And then I tell them about cabergoline and then they look at me and they say, that's amazing. And are you retiring anytime soon? Because <laughs> I need to make sure that option is still available. <laughs> And then I'm like, oh, I should have dyed my hair again. <laughs> they can see all the gray hair. So, yeah. So that's, I mean, really, it's a lifeline for women. That's the bottom line. Okay. Um, and then the last thing I wanted to just talk about was just that uh, what we had touched on, just the psychological state of women with an oversupply, and that to um, identify that sometimes you do maybe to address OCD. 
um, because some women are just very, very protective and particular and, you know, are worried about any little drop, even though it's really affecting their health and or their infant's health. Um, so uh, that's oftentimes a time, a time to take out the GAD-7 and have them, you know, fill that out to see if they have anxiety. Um, I have all of them filled the, out, so I know up front. <laughs> oh, you do? You have all oh, women filled yeah. Every in my breastfeeding clinic, yep, one side is Q9 and the other is uh, CAD7. It's stapled to the intake form that says how many ounces they're making and where they delivered and blah, blah, blah. And it's been amazing because, you know, sometimes you can tell, but sometimes you really can't, especially with the anxiety. There are people who... I would never have realized, and they're, you know, in the high, moderate to severe range on anxiety, and I'm so lucky in my current clinical practice that we have a really strong postpartum therapy team that I can easily refer people to, and so it really is an additional thing I can do to help my patients who, you know, they're struggling. Yeah, yeah, and that's the thing, don't measure what you can't help with, you know, right? And so that's, that's that's great that you have that team. You know, it's funny, you know, I've often worried about handing out to patients when they come into the lactation clinic because, of course, they're going to be anxious, of course, they're going to be sad, of course, they're going to be stressed because they're here in the lactation clinic. And so I worry about saying, well, you have this problem. And sometimes I look at them and I'm like, is all of this related to this? Like, and, you know, and we'll just sit on it. We'll be like, okay, let's see what happens in a few weeks as we treat this. They're so relieved to have somebody who has any idea how to treat them that they're willing to take a breath and sort of hang in there. So I don't refer them all the first day, but it's, it's yeah. good to know. And then if they do score high, I follow it. I, you know, and it's so it's so easy to do because they fill it out while they're waiting for me. And then I can look at it and be like, Oh, look at that. It's a one and a zero. Great. I don't have to worry. Or, you know, this one's a little, a little bit higher. Find it helpful. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, no, I think it's good. I just worry about women feeling like they're being labeled as um, you're, you're worried because you have this, like you're, your underlying oh. reason for being here, yeah. worrying about your pain is because you're depressed. Something, oh, no, I, mean, I reverse I, it. I totally you know, normalize it. And I say, wow, you have been through so much. You know, anybody would be stressed with all this, you know, no sleep and this and that and the other. We're going to help. And I'll, I'll yeah. find, I don't know, I find that they're happy to have somebody acknowledge it. Mm-hmm. Once right. I had yeah. somebody refuse to fill it out, but then later on, after I got to know her well, I mean, she already had a therapist and a psychiatrist. And uh, later on, okay. she did because I gave yeah. it to her again because that's just my habit, and I forgot, and she just filled it out, and I'm like, oh, you know, how's it going now? Right. Um, all right. So, um, should we move on and talk about the coronavirus? Yeah, I just have one more question for you about that awesome protocol. Good work, and that is. Um, Sometimes people, when I've been at conferences and things and talked to experienced lactation consultants, have mentioned the use of ice in trying to um, decrease milk production. And I'm just curious, you know, I haven't found that to be useful, but is that something that you hear people talk about? It wasn't included. So did you guys discuss it? Ice? No, we didn't. There's no evidence for ice. I've never seen any literature on ice. 
Um, and again, that's the thing. That's why I wanted to talk about the difference between engorgement, engorgement. And, yeah. and oversupply because it's, I don't see why ice, I don't know that cold is a stimulus for reducing supply. If it was, we'd be in big trouble in Wisconsin. <laughs> Walking around cool. with his, or Eskimos, Eskimos are, you know, like people in Native Americans, you know, people who are in, um, you know, people who live in very Inuits who live in very northern areas um you know in the arctic i mean yeah no i agree i just cold. i've heard it and so you know it's curious and it makes sense that little yeah. and and sometimes people who have a lot of milk who are sort of um prone to plugging and recurrent mastitis will then get engorged because they'll have an area of the breast that's blocked from drainage. And so that, you know, fluid starts leaking in between the cells and they get engorgement as part of their mastitis picture. And yeah, those get, people, yeah, yeah. I would say, mm -hmm. I find really helpful to teach them lymphatic drainage massage and say, yeah. when you're starting to have those problems with plugged ducts, um, doing this massage to help remove the extra fluid up towards your armpit will help then for the ducts that flow toward the nipple to be less obstructed by the surrounding swelling in the tissue, and you'll have an easier mm -hmm. time clearing those areas. Yes, I totally agree. Yeah, absolutely. And even OT intervention, you know, with some taping and all of some of the strategies that we learned from Dr. Oh, Mitchell, and lastly, sometimes when they have really high supply and they are you know having mastitis or sort of borderline then i will you know be like don't try to stretch out your pumping right now right now we got to get this infection under control first yeah and, you know right. those are often right. the ones when i'm using the carbergaline to try to to lower the supply if it's severe before we try to decrease them um, the frequency yeah. of milk removal because otherwise they just won't clear the infection effectively Oh, absolutely. It's definitely not a time to cut down. And I use lecithin. I mean, I find that some of my patients will tell me who I've seen, you know, I saw them with their first baby and they had a high supply and they had recurrent plugs. And then they, I see them the next time and they said, you know, this time I started with lecithin and that's been a savior for me. Like I haven't had any mastitis and I still have this high supply. So I get the sense that women feel like they will also say their milk flows better. Um, and so lecithin does seem to help. Um, to prevent plugs and mastitis. So when they're dealing with, as they are dealing with it and they are getting plugs, I will recommend less of them until, um, as we're trying to get that supply under control, because it's so hard for them to cut down on their frequency of nursing and pumping um, because of the plugs. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yes. And then I should also add, you know, that for women who are really continually having this problem and they have a lot of pain, um, to think about a breast infection that they could have a dysbiosis and they mm -hmm. may need a breast milk culture. Yeah. Yes. Wow, so, um, that okay, was talk about fascinating. That. Yeah, fat, fat <laughs> So I'm fascinated by the COVID-19. I know. It's never good to be interesting to the doctor, as I like to say. I know. It's so true. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, yes. So the novel coronavirus, um, or COVID-19, the infection that's being caused by it, which was recently discovered in Wuhan, China. Um, and has some similarities to some previous coronavirus outbreaks like SARS and MERS. Um, it's a viral respiratory infection that is in some ways similar to influenza in that it can be transmitted person to person via um, 
oral, oral and nasal secretions. Um, and it is transmitted among close contacts. This virus is, um, at the time of this recording, it's still active in China. There have recently been infections that have been identified in the United States, as well as in Italy, South Korea, and um, this morning I heard that they had identified an infection in Africa. Um, and wow. so huh. It's of great concern that, um, you know, it seems very contagious. And unlike um, some of the previous coronaviruses where people had to already be symptomatic before they were contagious, it's more like influenza in that you can um, be contagious before you start to show symptoms. Um, with the SARS outbreak, people would actually have to be febrile for several days before they would become contagious. And so it made it much easier for public health authorities to identify new infections and isolate them um, before they could spread the disease further. And unfortunately, that does not appear to be the case um, with this infection. Um, in terms of what we're gonna talk about today, there is very limited data, but there is um, some new guidance that has come out from the Centers of Disease Control that is addressing um, frequently asked questions about pregnant women and transmission during pregnancy or delivery, as well as through breast milk. Um, and there was a case study that came out very recently, or a case series um, from Wuhan of nine mothers who were infected and symptomatic during their pregnancies, um, during their third trimester, and were all um, found to have um, some chest, opac um, chest um, opacities on CT scan, who were all delivered by cesarean section, and they um, took samples of amniotic fluid, as well as cord blood, um, breast milk, and none of the babies were infected via vertical transmission, meaning they were not infected from their mothers during the pregnancy or at the time of delivery. And in addition, the virus was not found in breast milk. So at this time, um, although the Centers for Disease Control are suggesting being conservative and there's further guidance that we can talk about in terms of um, exposing infants, like close contact between infants um, who are born to infected mothers or people who are at risk for infection because of their contacts, the good news is that it does not appear that there is transmission directly through breast milk. That Great. mothers are able to um, continue to try to bring in their milk supply after they deliver and the milk that they collect um, can be given to the infants. Certainly it is really important for moms to have really good hygiene when they're doing that. So they should use good hand hygiene. Um, they should have clean pump parts if they're removing milk and they should wear a mask. So because this infection is so contagious, if an infant is born to a mother who is um, symptomatic or is at risk of becoming symptomatic, the guidance is currently to separate those infants from their mothers um, so that they will be protected from those um, respiratory secretions. If that is not possible and um, babies are going to be cared for in the same room as their mother, it is still 
ideal to use some sort of barriers to have mothers wear a mask and to keep the baby six feet from people who are infected, have a well caregiver take care of that infant. Um, but if the milk has been collected in a sanitary fashion, then it would still be ideal to give that to the baby because hopefully it is going to offer them some protection in terms of the antibody to the virus, which the mom will be making, which has been detected in milk while the virus has not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like it's better to default to that. I mean, so many viruses that women get, like influenza and rhinovirus and so many you know, viral infections, the infants do so much better when they're breastfeeding as opposed to not. So until we can say absolutely that milk is making the baby sick, I mean, because even if it's spread, it just still may be better. We still, I mean, it doesn't automatically mean that the infant is going to um, fare worse if there's virus oh, in the milk and I should say, those other factors. Yeah, I should say that there is not currently evidence that women who are infected in their third trimester have worse outcomes than other adults, um, which mm. in some mm -hmm. viruses, people who are pregnant are at risk for worse disease. That has not been found to be mm -hmm. the case so far. Um, and I think That's there also good. has not been evidence that infants are um, getting particularly severe disease. So in general, the news has been that younger patients have been less sick. Um, initially, when the virus was first reported, there were a lot of cases. There were none in patients under the age of 18 for a very long time. Um, so hopefully this will not be as severe in children. I have this, you know, pediatrician's right. perspective. Sorry, adults. Yeah, um, but it's been mostly more elderly. Yeah. Yeah, but it's... Except it is, for that doctor who's 34 who died. Um, so sad. Yeah. Yeah. So. All right. Well, thanks for reviewing the stuff on COVID-19. More to come on that. Maybe we'll include that in our next podcast as well, like an update on that. Have a great exactly. uh, month, and I look forward to talking to you soon. Sounds perfect. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. For questions regarding this podcast, please contact us through our website at lacted.org. We have other educational projects, including the Clinical Question of the Week, our Little Green Book of Breastfeeding Management for Physicians, and our various educational courses and conferences for physicians and other breastfeeding supporters. If you want to see what we look like, check out our Breastfeeding Medicine podcast Facebook page, where you can post any questions or comments about our podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with you in about four weeks.